0: This piece was brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: As a nation, we have grown so much in confidence. I mean, I remember when I was a child, we really, as a nation, most of us had an inferiority complex. We thought that what was in the UK or what was in America, or whatever, had to be better and more delicious and more sophisticated and more everything than what we had in Ireland. And then gradually, as people you know, became more affluent, travelled more, I suddenly realised, oh my goodness, you know, what we have in Ireland is amazing. So uh, we now realise that Ireland... As a country, we are blessed by nature and by the good Lord or whatever in terms of food production.
0: HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Dorina Allen. Dorina Allen is Ireland's best-known chef and culinary ambassador. She's the founder of Ballymaloe Cookery School, now the country's longest-running cooking school and a globally renowned institution that has hosted and taught some of the world's greatest chefs. In addition, she hosted a cooking television program called Simply Delicious for nine seasons, which is credited with teaching generations of Irish how to cook, and earned her comparisons to Julia Child. She's also written a column for the Irish Examiner since 1998, and is an accomplished author. Darina Allen is a champion of locally grown organic produce, and is responsible for starting Ireland's first farmer's market. Against all odds, Darina Allen was able to follow her food dreams.
1: I was educated by Dominican nuns and at that says that was the early 60s lovely Dominicans so were always considered to be quite visionary nuns I was at boarding school for five years and it was coming to the time where of course you had to make a decision what you were going to do and the nuns were very much encouraging us uh, now girls you all, you, you'll all need to have a proper career you know at that stage women were just it was just beginning to be accepted that women should have a career so a lot of my friends were doing law or architecture or medicine or the sciences or something and all I really knew anything about uh, from home was cooking or gardening, because my mother was a very good gardener as well. Indeed, my grandfather was too. And I really loved to cook. I just loved cooking. But, of course, when I said I I wanted to be a a chef or a cook, there was sort of this deep intake of breath. Well, well, certainly not. And, I mean, what would you want to learn how to cook for, I mean, or grow? The other thing I thought of was, you know, gardening or something. Um, You know, you're never going to need that, you know, because, of course, the whole emphasis at that stage was on an academic career. So, basically, the subliminal message was, well, these practical skills are of much lesser value and now you're going to be a thoroughly modern woman you know you'll have a proper career so the, I said well well really cooking or growing are the two things that I really are, seem to be drawn towards so they said well a degree in horticulture or else you do hotel management because remember at that stage there was no such chefs you never heard the name of chefs the chefs in the top restaurants were men and women just ran tea shops or little country cafes or something like that and it was impossible for a woman to get into a top kitchen so anyway I enrolled in that wonderful hotel school in Dublin at that stage it was called Cahill street and I did hotel and catering management so that's uh, and then of course at the end of that I still wanted to cook I wasn't really particularly interested in the management bit of it at all really I just wanted to cook and I was again the same dilemma Um, I couldn't get into any of the top restaurants because they were you know, men were chefs. And so I was faced with desperately wanting to learn more. I wanted to learn how to make homemade ice creams and I wanted to learn more about fresh herbs. Uh, This is now the late 60s, 68. And I wanted to Learn how to make souffles and terrines and things like that, which sounded so exotic in the in the sixties. But to get into a top kitchen was really difficult. So I just, by sheer chance, heard about Myrtle Allen, who had farmer's wife down in East Cork, who'd started a restaurant, opened a restaurant in her own house out on a farm in the country which was considered unheard of at the time so I to one of the lecturers in the college I had told her the sort of thing I was looking for and she said well look you might try this and she came back with a name and address on a piece of paper and the name and she said write to this woman and the name on the piece of paper was Marital Allen who's now my mother-in-law so I became the member of the family by the simple expedient of marrying the boss's son that's how it's done (laughs) My uh, husband is a horticulturalist. We had five acres of greenhouses. We had uh, sixty-five acres of apples, quite a big apple orchard. This was a commercial horticultural enterprise. We also had mushroom farm then, and it was very successful. It was actually started by my father-in-law, and my husband did a degree in horticulture and inherited the business. But then, the and it employed up to hundred people. There were exported, of course, tomatoes and mushrooms and so on. So it was very important horticulture business in Ireland. But my father-in-law was a great entrepreneur. He would get something started, then he'd b- jump onto the next thing and so on. So at the, at, in the late 60s, early 70s, labour costs started to rise. Before that, they really had been you know, more or less constant. Then there was the oil crisis and 25% inflation. And suddenly uh, the, uh, what had been a very successful business was you know, running really into financial difficulties and it really needed a huge injection of capital to, uh, to modernise the greenhouse and all of that. So at the same time, we began to get less and less for our produce. You know, the, 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 this whole cheap food policy was really kicking in. So it was obvious that the writing was on the wall and we needed to do something else. So we had to look at what talents we had what resources we had between us at that stage we had four small children we were seriously looking at losing the roof over our heads unless we did something earned a living in a different way so we started a farm shop we uh, so we stopped uh, growing commercially first the mushroom farmers closed down this was all very traumatic when we were a young married couple then we pulled out some of the orchards and then uh, also decided to go out of commercial production of tomatoes and just kept one acre of greenhouses. Then we started a farm shop on the farm and that was very successful. We did it for about three years and we made some money but not really enough to justify the work we were doing. It was a seven day week, we had four small children so there was a real, you know, we were working so hard.
0: With the farm business failing, Dorina and her husband Tim were desperate for a way to keep their dreams alive what happened next would eventually lead to the iconic Ballymaloe cooking school
1: at that stage martle my mother-in-law in the winters she would uh, decided to give some cooking classes in Valley when the bedrooms weren't very busy, So and I would help her. I was uh, helping in the kitchen a little bit. I, uh, she then decided, if you don't mind, to start a restaurant in Paris as a showcase for Irish food called La Fermi Hollandaise, which was very successful, but it never really made money, but it continued for many years. But in the meantime... There was I, back in Shanagari, and people were still ringing up looking for cooking classes. So Myrtle said, why don't you do them? And I thought, well, nobody's going to come and see me, because it was really Myrtle Allen's name that was known and was famous. But I had been assisting her, and, and we really needed the money. And she said, look, I think you should go ahead. So I put an ad in the local newspaper, the Cork Examiner, and started a little series of courses on Saturday mornings people came and uh, they some of the Ballymaloo customers came who wanted to find out how to do some of the dishes that they loved at Balmaloo. They came in their little mink jackets out of cork and in little lovely, great big cars and we hit our rusty Renault 4L around the back. And, uh, so, and then, of course, anything like that that you do the first time is always the most difficult. And then if you get through the first time, people say, well, that was great, then it gives you more confidence and on and on. So I did that for a couple of years and then a friend of mine said, look, why don't you start a residential cooking school in Ireland. I think you could do this because basically people are going to the Cordon Blue in London or Paris or something. And so I thought, well, maybe. And then in the meantime, I'd heard about Italian food. Now, this is in the late 70s. And I was desperate to learn a bit more about Italian food. And, you know, it seems ridiculous now to think that it was such a mystery. But I'd been making pasta, um, homemade pasta, and... Uh, in my kitchen at home and drawn for that. And then, as luck would have it, Jane Montong, who was the food editor of Gourmet Magazine, came and stayed in Bamloo. And Myrtle, my mother-in-law, said to her, look, Dorina really would love to learn more about Italian food. Where should she go? And Myrtle said, well, there's only one person, and that's Marcella Hazan. And uh, so, and she has a cooking school in Bologna. So she sent me, when she went back, she sent me Marcella Hazan's address. I wrote to her, of course, it was all snail mail at that time. And I got back this little simple brochure about uh, a week in, you know, Bologna. And that was the first, Marcella was one of the first people to actually do this combination of cooking classes and visits to markets and vineyards and cheesemakers and all of that. And it was 650 I think it must have been dollars, wasn't it, at that time. And this is in 1980, I'd say, 1980, 81. But because I'd been working so hard and because I wanted to do this with the farm shop, my husband, when he knew how much I wanted to go, he literally spent the last, I mean, really, the last money we had and um, gave me a present of Michel Hassan's course. So I went off to Boulogne, to uh, my first time to Italy, down on the train from Paris, to uh, Marcella's course and I loved it and uh, Marcella and Victor were so lovely and fascinated they wondered how on earth I got an Irish farmer's wife because I was just an Irish farmer's wife at that stage Uh, something very interesting happened that week I'd heard about how amazing Italian food was and how fantastic the food in the markets and everything was how fantastic the fish was and yet the food was delicious but suddenly i realized well it's not any more delicious than what we have at home in our own gardens in the greenhouses etc and it was the real eureka moment was one there was a great build-up to this farewell dinner in Cesanatico, which was actually marcella's hometown and we were going to have this seafood dinner i still remember the name of the restaurant was called la gambera i think which i think means the shrimp or something or the prawn and it was out on stilts literally on the on the beach and we had We did indeed have a delicious dinner, wonderful fresh seafood. But suddenly I thought, wow, these prawns and this fish is not any better than the beautiful fresh fish we get in from the boats in Malikotten. And then I suddenly realised that the answer to our earning a living in a different way was right under my nose. We were at home in the middle of a farm growing a huge variety of produce even at that time because we had, uh, of course, all the vegetables and herbs and we had uh, a nacre of greenhouse still. And we were right beside the sea with wonderful fish coming in from the boats of Malicotton, Ballymillu House, the restaurant and the inn, as you would call it, was already established with a whole network of small producers. So I thought it was like a dung sort of moment where you'd think what am i thinking about the answer is right under my nose we have to start a cooking school in the middle of the farm the gardens we have the produce there we have the hens we have the chickens of course i went home and we started opened the Ballymaloe cookery school in september 1983 so it's we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year What I did was, before I opened the cooking school, I actually went to five of what I reckoned were the top cooking schools in the UK the Cordon Bleu, Top Marie's in Woking, and Prue Leeds, etc. And I did a class in each one also to just see what they were doing, what their standard was, etc Just in a way that gives you confidence, you know. And then I looked at what they were charging, so and the Cordon Bleu in London, the Cordon Bleu in Paris and so on. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do a cooking school, it has to be as good as anything anywhere in the world. And why can't it be? We're in the middle of this sounds all very whatever. But that was how I thought. I thought we're in the middle of a farm, we've fabulous produce, we can really do a good job. And so I just charged the same as they did, which was a bit cheeky actually when I was just starting off. But I thought but what I want to do, I think if you're starting a business, there's a couple of things that are really important. One is to charge enough so you can do a good job. So I didn't want to be in a position where if somebody burnt something that, you know, you thought, oh, well, I can't give them more ingredients because, you know, it's it's going to cut my margin. And anyway, I've never really, really done anything just for money. It's sort of, in a way it's great. You have to make money to keep a business going, to pay your staff, to keep the show on the road. But I it's, it hasn't been money has never been the sole reason for me doing something. It's sort of a sort of greater passion in some ways. The other thing that I've always felt is a lot of marketing and advertising, and everything promises the world, but usually does not deliver. So our sort of kind of way we do it is to promise less and give more so that very often when people come, they think, oh my goodness, this is, you know, the perception sometimes is, well, this is quite expensive. But when people are leaving, they feel that they've at the very least got value for money and usually much, much more. So that's what we very much aim for and that they think, oh, I can't wait to come back. The other thing that I suddenly realised when I started the school was oh now I could have some guest teachers so I can all my heroes I thought well I can ask them will they come and teach at the cooking school I wonder will they come to Ireland will they like that so I one of the first people I picked up the phone to was Marta Jeffrey, and You know, you laugh at this now, but at that stage, I was so intimidated by making a phone call to America. (laughs) I got her phone number, I think, through Gourmet magazine, and I uh, picked up the phone, rang her and got straight through to her, actually. And at that stage, it was March 86, and Gourmet magazine, believe it or not, uh, had come and done a cover story about the cooking school. It was the first cooking school in the world they'd written about, amazingly. When I picked up the phone and rang Martyr, she apparently had just read the Gourmet magazine, and, and suddenly I'm on the end of the phone, I'm saying, oh, I have a little cooking school in Ireland. I wonder whether... I could tempt you to come over and teach a guest a chef's lesson. She said, Are you Bally Malou? And I said, Yes, and she said, I'd love to. I couldn't believe it. I got off the phone, and I went, Whew <laughs> Like what they say, punching the air nowadays. So and then I had Jane Grigson and Claudia Roden, of course, and Data Chang and so through the years it's like a, a who's who of the food world really. Uh, the, the people who came and teach at thought at the school.
0: After finding great success with the Malu cooking school, Doreena Allen had another Eureka moment. This time, it would lead her to start Ireland's very first farmer's market.
1: Yes, I did start the first farmer's market in Ireland, and that came about because I was visiting a friend in San Francisco, Mary Risley, who, by the way, has a cooking school called Taunt Marie's in, in San Francisco, and I was staying with her, and she remembered coming in late at night, and she said, well, look, we won't stay up too late because I want to take you to this farmer's market that started at the other side of town in a parking lot. Uh, I think you might be very interested in it. And I, I said, oh, Mary, I'm not getting up at, like, 7 o'clock in the morning tomorrow morning but she's even bossier than I am anyway she traipsed me out to this farmer's market that was in a parking lot at the other side of town at that stage and this was another eureka moment for me because at that time in ireland the supermarket system was really becoming established and the a lot of the supermarkets had gone over to a central distribution system so what would happen was that local farmers would send their potatoes or carrots or you know whatever it was their beef or whatever uh, to a central distribution store in dublin where so everything went up to the main cities and then was distributed back out to the supermarkets around the country so suddenly local shops many of them which were owned by supermarkets at that time uh, were suddenly told that they couldn 't sell local food or they would be almost penalized if they bought more than two percent of local produce so people who were sort of selling potatoes or carrots or cabbages into a local shop suddenly were told well i 'm sorry we can 't buy from you any longer because we have to buy from central distribution from the head office so this was happening so suddenly local people local farmers couldn 't sell to the to the ordinary local shop system that they had been doing for generations and local people couldn't get local food so this was kind of in the background this was happening and here I am bleary-eyed at 7 15 in the morning in this parking lot in San Francisco and I suddenly think oh my god if we could get the market system reestablished in Ireland local people and uh, local farmers could sell to local people and local people could get the local food again. Otherwise, they can't meet. There were farmers in desperation to sell their produce on one side, local people in desperation to get it at the other side. But most people haven't got time to go directly to farms to buy. So I came home all fired up, and I, out of that came... I started the first farmer's market in Ireland on the Coal Quay in Cork, where there'd been, at that stage, a market uh, for over 400 years. At that stage, I was on television with my, tele- my uh, Simply Delicious series, I realised the importance of, I wanted to, but of doing it myself too. So when people saw uh, somebody who was on television, you know, a sort of celebrity in a vertical stage, you know, setting up with another five or six people on the side of the street in Cork, uh, a market... Uh, they, you know, they've got quite a lot of publicity, incredulous publicity, uh, and so that was the beginning of the farmers' market movement. Now there are over one hundred and sixty farmers' markets in Ireland. My son-in-law, Rupert Hugh Jones, actually runs two farmers' markets outside Cork as well, called Douglas and Man Point, who are award-winning farmers' markets. So this is of all the little things I've been involved in in my career, you might say, in Irish commerce. This is the thing I'm most proud of, of actually having restarted the farmers' markets, which has made such a difference to so many people's lives. I mean, so many farmers have come and said to me, I wouldn't still be on the land if it wasn't for you. And I mean, how wonderful is that?
0: These days, Darina has been putting a lot of attention on young mothers and providing proper nutrition for children.
1: One of the things that's been really concerning me more and more in the last number of years, now, now of course that I have grandchildren myself as well, I've got nine, nine grandchildren at this stage, we're doing our bit for our country, but uh, is basically... You know, young mothers who seem terrified and confused by all the conflicting information they're getting and if you're not eating well yourself, that a baby and a toddler will want to eat the same food. I mean, genes being what they are, they love the same food, the kind of foods that you love yourself. So there's no point in a mother who's not uh, well, if a mother is not eating well herself or if there's a lot of food in the in the house, that, you know, fast food and that kind of thing. I mean, again, my own grandchildren, they're not particularly different than anything else. It's just that we live in the middle of an organic farm and we have a greenhouse. We grow a lot of things ourselves. So they, you know, they go into the greenhouse and they literally will eat kale off the plants. You know, they uh, eat the little Romanesco and broccoli uh, and they call them Christmas trees, you know. So they, and they don't know any different, that's just their norm and I've just come back from India and of course the little babies in India, what what do they eat? They eat dal, they eat some spicy food they don't necessarily have chilli until their, until their second or third year, but that's the mothers, that's the food the mothers eat, so that's what they eat. If you're in Mexico, again, it'll be the sort of Mexican food. If you love lentils, like of my daughter does, well, then the baby will love lentils. So, you know, we are so fortunate in, in a way, my generation, I'm now sixty-six years of age, I think. And no, I'm sorry, I'm 65, actually. <laughs> but anyway, our, we are all living on inherited good health from our ancestors. We are what we are because what of our mothers, grandmothers, great grandmothers at all, at. and so they passed us down this gift of health from eating simple nourishing food so in a way one really worries about that you know this generation in many many cases is not passing on this health to their uh, children grandchildren of course it's it doesn't just start when the baby is born There's nothing new under the sun, but it's just a a question of of nowadays we get so much of our information from the television and from, you know, really aggressive marketing that it's to stop for a second and think, well, look. Uh, the world survived to this point in time, you know. So how was it done before all of this kind, all these products and everything were available? And uh, if you can possibly manage to keep away from them totally, and it's difficult, people are very, very busy. Young mothers very often are actually uh, keeping down a job as well as uh, looking after children. I just think they're heroes. I can't imagine how it's done, really, and they're under financial pressure. So, So anything one can do to give them more confidence in their own instincts is really worthwhile.
0: Jerena Allen continues to question how we eat and grow our food, both in Ireland and globally, and works tirelessly to spread the good word of good food across the world. This program was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee for HeritageRadioNetwork.org with additional research and assistance from Talia Ralph. The songs used in this piece in order of appearance are Radio Ra" by Obesity, Dawn by Jerome LOL, Running Like a Ghost by Shadowbox, Every Man's Balance by Comanche, Dirty Hands by Eula, Let's Not by Shadowbox, Kodachrome by Comanche, and again, Rara by Obesity. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.